Uh, even, even worse than losing our salvation after four hours or five hours playing risk, we almost lost our wives, uh, which, that's, uh, yeah, I know that was, uh, it's, it's, it's a blast, and I do, I, thanks for letting me preach. Actually, yeah, it's, it, is, it is a fun, fun chance to be here with you guys and, and to get to know the family that serves our family, and it's just, it's a, it's a good thing be in Christ together, isn't it? So, uh, it's Palm Sunday this, this morning, so we're in John chapter 12, we're going to be reading uh, verse 12 to verse 19, so uh, if you would like to turn there with me in your Bibles, uh, and then if you're able to, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John writes, The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was sitting with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed his sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Would you pray with me? So, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we do pray that you would bless it, that you would give us uh, ears to see, uh, to hear what you have to say to us, and eyes to see Jesus uh, as you have glorified him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there's this uh, scene that makes it into a good number of movies that uh, Hollywood produces. Uh, it's a shot that the directors and producers really like because it, it communicates uh, desolation and abandonment and actually just the heart and the pit of despair. And it's the scene of a person stranded on a desolate highway. It's a straight, two-lane road that kind of disappears off into the horizon. There's nothing around because, of course, it's a desert. And it's hot. And you know it's hot because as you look off into the horizon, there's the wavy heat lines that sort of blur whatever is out there. And normally I would say that you shouldn't trust what you see in the movies. Normally, I, I would tell you that, ah, most of all oh, that's just dramatic effect. Don't, they, they don't know what they're talking about. But this scene, the desert road scene, they're getting that one right. And I know, because you see, I am an expert at being stranded on a desert road in the middle of the summer. I, uh, I grew up uh, about three and a half hours east of here in the Imperial Mexicali Valleys out in, in the desert. And uh, 
Back when I was growing up in the late 70s, 80s, cars weren't as reliable as they are today. And for some reason, all the bad cars made it to our family. And so every time, literally every time that we set out to cross the desert, which of course if you live in the Imperial Valley, you have to cross the desert to get anywhere. Every time we attempted to cross the desert, it was a real question as to whether or not we were going to make it across. Uh, One time, I remember particularly, we were driving uh, through the desolate stretch between Mexicali and the the mountains where there was this camp that we were going to uh, in the summer, and we were out in the middle of nowhere, and we ran out of gas. See, apparently, the gas gauge on the car that we were driving didn't work. See, because the gas gauge said full, but it wasn't full. It was lying. And so there we were in the desert, stranded. No water, no way to communicate. Yes, kids, this was before cell phones. Too far from any gas station to try and walk, and we're completely helpless. We are totally dependent at this point on somebody coming to rescue us, to save us. Now, when you're in that situation, after a while, you kind of start straining your eyes out to the horizon to see if anybody is coming. And the longer you're out there, the harder you strain, the more you hope. And when you finally are able to distinguish the vague outline of a vehicle coming amidst the wavy heat lines bouncing off the desert, you get genuinely excited, even though you have no idea who it is. Just the fact that someone is coming gives you hope. They might help. Well, on this particular occasion, after a couple hours out in the desert heat, help finally came. And it came in the form of a bus driving down the highway. And I've never been happier to see a bus in my life. It would seem that this day, at least, I was not going to die of thirst out in the desert. But not only that, it got even better as the bus pulled up and stopped. See, it turns out that my dad was driving the bus. And all my friends were in the bus with him. And no, this was not a heat-induced hallucination in the desert. This really was the true thing. See, my dad, we were headed up to this camp in the mountains, and he, you know, we were supposed to leave and be there hours beforehand, and my dad was coming behind us. And so I was happy, and everything inside me wanted to leap out and say, We're saved! We're saved! Yes! Of course, I didn't, because I was like 14 at the time, and all my friends were in the bus. I played it cool. Yeah, hey, yeah, just hanging out. But believe me, inside, I was saying, Hosanna! Hosanna! Because, yeah. Yeah, I know. That's what Hosanna means. It means we're saved. Yes! See, Hosanna is this kind of a contraction of the Hebrew words, save and please. 
And you look at the context of how people are chanting this phrase in the story that we talk about every year at this time. And you realize that these people, as they're chanting this phrase, Hosanna, Hosanna, they're not, they're not pleading for their lives here. They're not afraid. If you kind of let your eyes or your brain imagine the scene as John describes it, you realize that these people, they're a bunch of people that are throwing a party. Because as far as they're concerned, their salvation has arrived. Yes, they had been stranded and vulnerable and exposed to the violence of the nations around them, but no longer. Because here, their salvation is coming to town. As it turns out, Hosanna is the kind of thing that you cheer when your salvation rolls up. Now, as weird as the scene with robes and palm branches and people screaming outside the city might seem to us, uh, to the people of Jerusalem, they, they were probably, actually, they would have been accustomed to these kind of processions. It was pretty common in those days for ruling kings or conquering generals to approach cities with great parades, with great fanfare. And Jerusalem, of course, had seen their share of conquering kings over the centuries. Now, some of those kings had come and they had been accommodating to the Jews and their lifestyle. Alexander the Great had approached Jerusalem some 350 years earlier. And it was a frightening moment for Jerusalem, right? Because in the great war, war between the Persians and the Greeks, uh, Jerusalem had actually backed kind of the Persian side of the equation. But Alexander had come and not destroyed Jerusalem. He actually came and he actually accommodated the Jews, actually made sort of a treaty with them. He had allowed them to continue to live their lives. Now other kings that had approached Jerusalem weren't so accommodating. A few generations after Alexander, there was this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes who had come. And he had come as a persecutor of the Jews. He had come with the intention to put an end to the worship of Yahweh. And so he killed a bunch of people in Jerusalem and after doing that, he actually went and slaughtered a pig on the altar at the temple to make it unclean so the worship could no longer happen in Jerusalem. Yeah, Jerusalem had seen these kinds of processions before. Some kings had come in peace, some kings had come in violence, but in recent history, they had all come as foreign powers. They had all come essentially as oppressors until today. Until Jesus. Now, this day is not some improvisation in God's plan. Uh, it actually had been foretold some 500 years before by the prophet Zechariah. Now, none of the people that were chanting Hosanna realizes that at the time. John tells us uh, that they had no idea that this was all connected. But as they thought about it afterwards, they remembered this prophecy of the day that the Messiah would come to Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion, the prophecy read. See your king coming, seated on a donkey's colt. It had been a very long time since Jerusalem had seen a king of their own coming 
But finally, at long last, here he was, their king. Question is, what kind of king? They had seen so many come and go. What kind of king was he going to be? Should they be rejoicing or should they be afraid? Of course, you and I are in the same situation here today, 2,000 years later. Every day we're presented with a seemingly endless procession of would-be kings and conquerors vying for our loyalty, offering to be the presiding authority in our lives. Some come in the form of actual people, you know, celebrities, political leaders, co-workers, family members, bosses. Also, some of them are impersonal things, you know, particularly philosophy or perspective, a habit, an addiction that we might have, maybe a certain way of seeing the world. But some promise success in our business, some offer us a position in society, some offer us the chance to get back at all the people that have hurt us over the years. Some come with threats to ruin us if we don't Submit to their authority. And then, of course, there's Jesus. What kind of king would he be in our lives? Well, the first clue as to what kind of king Jesus was um, was what he was driving that day. See, you can, uh, you can tell a lot about a person by what kind of transportation they use. You see it all the time. Uh, You go to a power meeting between two big corporations that are going to hash out the final, you know, parts of of a big, huge deal, or go to a summit of world leaders, or even something as simple as a high school prom. I mean, you see a whole bunch of different kinds of cars that people are driving, but I guarantee you this, no one's showing up in a minivan. Right? Because what we arrive in, it communicates something about us. And a minivan, well, a minivan just doesn't communicate power or influence or strength. A minivan, I mean, they try to make them look cool. They really do. But at the end of the day, a minivan communicates exhaustion. It communicates two-month-old french fries that are stuck in the cracks of your chairs that you're never going to get out communicates a drawer in the console that you can't get to close anymore. What you show up and says something about you, true today, same is true back then. Conquering kings, like Alexander the Great. Well, he rode up in a conquering stallion. Large, impressive beasts of war that communicated strength and power that could just run you over if they wanted I mean, even today, right, police forces, a lot of them have these mounted divisions, right, that they kind of put the police officers on whenever there's a large gathering of people. Because there's just something about a guy on a horse that says, boom, you know? I don't know of a single police force that has a donkey division. (laughs) Zechariah had prophesied to the people of Israel. 
Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus comes on a donkey, and that tells you something. First off, it tells you that he comes in humility with nothing to prove. See, most kings or emperors of the day, frankly, throughout history, really, uh, have demanded to be treated and worshipped as gods. Of course, Alexander the Great believed he descended from gods, had commanded that his people worship him. But really, he was pretending to be a god. And so he rode a stallion, and that kind of helped him sell the con, if you will. Jesus, on the other hand, was God, but did not consider equality with God is something to be grasped. So he emptied himself and rode in on a donkey. Now, Jesus' humility can be kind of a hard thing to appreciate sometimes. I mean, sure, it's an admirable character quality that, yeah, one so powerful and majestic should arrive in such a humble package that he would humble himself to die for us. That's nice, really great for him. But beside that, it can be tempting to think that Jesus' humility doesn't really affect us that much. It doesn't matter that much to us. In fact, you might actually see Jesus' humility as maybe, maybe even a negative thing. You know, do you really want a king that is humble? Or are kings kind of like lawyers, right? Where if you're about to go on trial and your lawyer you know, rolls up in a minivan and he's this humble, nice guy. I don't know, you might be on the phone looking for another lawyer, right? But the reality is that the fact that Jesus is a humble king means everything for our future. See, proud kings depend on keeping other people down, beneath them. Your head shall never be higher than the king's. See, their pride depends on that. But Jesus, because he is a humble king, isn't about keeping humanity down in slavery. He is about lifting us up. When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. A proud king would spend all eternity keeping you down, but because Jesus is a humble king, he wants to spend all all eternity lifting you up, as First Peter chapter 5 promises. But not only does riding in on a donkey let, let us know Jesus' general, general attitude about himself, it also states his intentions. You see, there's body language involved in how a king approaches a city. You ride up on a horse, it's a demonstration of power. It's a move to intimidate. Horses were beasts of war. A king riding up on a, uh, to a city on a horse is a king that is coming ready for a fight. When Alexander rode up to Jerusalem in his stallion of war, I mean, even though he ended up being accommodating to the Jews, he allowed them co to continue to function and all the rest of that stuff, he did so only on the condition that the Jews would pay tribute and would be in submission to him. And he did so with his world-conquering war machine right behind him, ready for battle if they decided not to accept his generous offer. 
Essentially, Alexander made the Jews an offer they couldn't refuse. And so they accepted. But a donkey says something different. A donkey sent the message that a king comes in peace. There's no threat involved here. No one ever goes to war on a donkey. That's why Zechariah's prophecy tells Jerusalem not to fear, but to rejoice. Because see, even though the Jews had been rebellious, they had sinned against God, their king is coming, not on a stallion ready to defeat and to conquer. Their king is coming on a donkey. He's coming to proclaim peace. Jesus, though he is God and is the most powerful man in the universe, he does not come to overpower us. He does not use his universe-creating strength to force people to conform to his will or else. He is a king that doesn't overpower. He invites. He draws men to himself. Whereas other conquerors like Alexander went out to the world and forced people of the world to submit to them, Jesus invites. He draws the world to himself. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, he says in John 12, 32. Verse 19 there in the passage we read earlier, even his enemies, the Pharisees, had to note. Look how the whole world is going after Jesus does not overpower, he invites. And let's be honest, that can be really annoying sometimes. Right? I mean, when we're struck, struggling with some area of sin in our life, some area of addiction, some aspect of our character that just doesn't seem to be changing, at those times we can really think that it might be really super great if Jesus would just overpower us and just take away this desire, just take away this habit that I have. If Jesus would just come and invade my life and force me to do what he wants. That, that seems like it would be really nice sometimes. When we look at the trouble in our world, the decisions that the world leaders are making, sometimes it seems like Jesus should just swoop in and force people to do things his way. Force people to stop fighting Sometimes we wish Jesus would ride into this world on a stallion with muscles bulging, a threatening scowl on his face, and just force people to be at peace. Frankly, that's what the Jews were expecting the Messiah to do, right? Come in and subdue the nations by force. Instead, he comes on a donkey. Yay! You're not going to subdue anybody by riding in on a donkey. At least that's what the world thinks. But when you spend a moment to think about it, just for a second, if you look at the story of history, you realize that actually subduing people by force is the method that doesn't work. At least not for long. I mean, just think of all the empires that have attempted to subdue the world by force. Alexander the Great wept when he found that there was no more world to conquer. And yet his great empire didn't last more than a generation. The same thing can be said of all the great military force powers throughout history. 
When you subdue people by force, it's only a matter of time before someone stronger comes and subdues you by force. But Jesus, though, riding on a donkey, 2,000 years later, close to 2 billion people claim him as their king, claim allegiance to him. People from all over the world, the Pharisees were right. The prophecies were right. God's promise to Abraham is fulfilled. The whole world is coming to Jesus. Jesus riding on a donkey. See, ultimately what we see in Jesus riding on a donkey is his definition of glory. You look up the definition of glory, you find that it means this very great praise, honor, or distinction. And glory was a huge deal for uh, the ancient rulers. Bringing glory to themselves, bringing glory to their empires, usually came in the form of these massive building projects, great military conquests, huge harems, uh, slaughter of their enemies, the accumulation of rare and fine goods. That was the glory of the kings of old. And we still kind of feel that way about glory today, right? That's why when someone makes an impressive entrance, we'll say, well, there she is in all her glory. By that, we usually mean awe-inspiring, jealousy-inspiring impressiveness. The world's kings are concerned about glory. Turns out King Jesus is very concerned about glory, too. In fact, that was why he came to Jerusalem, to be glorified. John 12, 23. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many. Wait a minute. He's talking about dying here. When Jesus talks about being glorified, he's talking about dying. He's talking about giving his life for the salvation of the world. He is talking about the cross. That's Jesus' idea of glory. But now, wait a minute, because, see, that kind of makes us go back to the first point when we were all excited about Jesus spending all of eternity lifting us up. Um, but what do we mean by that now? Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2.14 that he has called us that we might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm starting to have my doubts about Jesus' definition of glory. And frankly, those are legitimate questions. Right? They're legitimate questions that I think the disciples had and that Jesus read in their eyes. Because he goes on to answer them in verse 25 and 26 of John chapter 12. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves you didn't misunderstand him. You were right. That is exactly what Jesus was talking. It is what it 
sounds like. Jesus' definition of glory is the way of the cross. And it's a road that he calls all those who would accept him as king to follow. He calls all those who want them to be his, their king to follow the way of the cross. Well, people responded to Jesus a whole bunch of different ways that day. Crowd loved him, of course, because a huge party. Everybody likes a party. And this is the guy that the party is around, so we're with him. But the reaction of the crowd is never reliable. It changes pretty quickly. That same crowd, less than a week later, would be yelling, not Hosanna anymore, but crucify him. Then there's the reaction of the rulers, uh, religious rulers of the day. To them, Jesus was threatening even riding in on a donkey, they could see that Jesus was going to ruin everything that they had spent their life building. Now, there were other rulers, John tells us, that behind the scenes actually kind of liked Jesus. They believed in him, but wouldn't do it openly because, as John 12.42 says, they were afraid that they might get kicked out of the club if they believed in Jesus openly. And so... They kept their faith hidden because, John says, they loved human praise more than the praise from God. And then there were the Greeks, the ones who would have been brought up on the stories of Alexander the Great and his great white stallion, his conquest of the world. Interesting enough, they were the ones who actually came looking for Jesus. Verse 21 tells us, they came looking for that king, riding that donkey. And which camp we land in is actually up to us. We actually decide our response to Jesus every day. Will we join the fickle ranks of the crowd that scream Hosanna one day and crucify him the next? Will we see Jesus as a threat to the life that we've been building? Will we keep our faith in Jesus hidden for fear of the powers of the world? Or will we see him coming as our king? Will we seek him as our king? Will we yell out, Hosanna, thank God, we are saved. Do not be afraid. See, your king is coming to you, seated on a donkey. Would you stand as we pray and close in worship? So Jesus, we're tempted by a whole bunch of different people offering to be the authority in our life. We are tempted by the deals that they promise to make with us, the accommodations. And we have to admit that sometimes we are a little intimidated about the cross. We have to admit that sometimes your humility confuses us. But there's something that rings true about you. There is a voice inside of us that, re- that tells us that you are our king. If we would only accept you and let you reign in our life. So pray that for us as we enter this holy week you would, Holy Spirit, teach us 
guide us. Help us to allow Jesus to be our King, we pray in His name.